Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello, hello, and welcome to IEEE Softbox Podcast. Uh, could you please introduce yourself? I'm Peter Baldebeek. I'm a professor of philosophy of technology at the University of Twente in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. and I study the interaction between humans and technologies. How do uh, new devices that we are making affect our our lives, our society, mm-hmm. and what ethical questions mm-hmm. arise from that? Great. So, when was the first time you heard about robots and AI, and what was the feeling at the time? It was a high. <laughs> I think that's a long time ago. When mm-hmm. I was a child, I was really, really interested in, in engineering and in design, and I think robots always had this amazing attraction on me, thinking that we could be able, as humans, to design technologies that were human-like. And that could have some form of autonomy, uh, even though I could not even think of the word autonomy back then, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think so. It was my early childhood, and I think the fascination was really in the, the boundary between humans and technologies. Can mm-hmm. we make technologies that are human like or have human like capacities or something? Mm-hmm. Great. So that's leave me another question. Mori, the Japanese robotistic fate. Since I was a child, I have never l- liked looking at Pex figure. They looked creepy to me. So when you were a child, how you think about robots at this time? Uh, I didn't dislike them actually at mm-hmm. all. <laughs> I found them fascinating, but I think they were also much more innocent. Uh, so I think the big fears that we mm-hmm. have now in our society that. Uh, Robots and AI might take our jobs, and that we would have killer robots, and yeah. that uh, ultimately AI might even take over the world of IoT devices mm-hmm. and turn itself against humans or something. That that, that was not so much mm-hmm. present for me back then. It was still at the level of uh, uh, toys, mm-hmm. playing with technology and exploring in a playful way mm-hmm. the boundaries between humans and technology. Okay, so if I ask you. How you would define robotics and AI from your perspective of philosophy technology? Maybe then it would still continue <laughs> the early fascination that mm-hmm. I had. So if I would, oh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a full-blown definition actually, but I think what makes uh, AI and robotics so fascinating and also so urgent to mm-hmm. think about in philosophy technology is exactly this boundary blurring between humans and technologies, where all kinds of Concepts and words that we have always used for humans now also start to apply somehow to technologies, mm-hmm. which has a lot of implications, uh, of course, for how we see ourselves. How special are we if robots can also learn and have some form of freedom or autonomy? Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, also it means that uh, the machine could take our place. Mm-hmm. And that's a fear that I think we've always had, but we now have it in a, in a new way. Mm-hmm. And if the robots and AI systems can do things that used to be for humans only, mm-hmm. then what will be our role in that world? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, most importantly, um, I would see robots and AI as technologies that affect also our, our mind, our thinking, especially AI, I think, has a lot of implications for, uh, for instance, uh, culture. 
uh, education, also for scientific practice. And mm-hmm. the, the work that I do at UNESCO at the moment, uh, where there's an ethics commission thinking about the ethics of science and technology, it focuses a lot on the future of education, culture, and science, which are the main uh, foci mm-hmm. of uh, the whole organization of UNESCO. And I think that's an effect that's typically uh, underestimated. People often get uh, stuck to that fear that the robot might take our place and mm-hmm. should we ban it or not, and should we have it or should we forbid it. But in the meantime, the robots and AI systems are entering our society and they change, I think, how we see science. They have impact uh, on cultural diversity, on the decisions that, that we make and, and the level to which we can take responsibility for our own decisions. And they, they might affect the diversity of language if machine translation might um, well take a more important role in our society. And that effect that somehow through the back door, robots mm-hmm. and AI are also changing what it means to be human and how our culture functions, how, how humans think mm-hmm. and judge and make decisions. And that's, for me, the real impact of AI and robots. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So... That's very interesting. I think you highlighted many points about the future of education. I think this is one of the important points, how the education receives education. And I would like to ask a question here. How you would see the education, especially in early stages of kids, for example? How you mean how education should respond yeah. to, to Do you robotic? think you're satisfied with the way of education we have? Because it's late, we have a question later about decision making and how to advise and design and etc. But yes. let me ask you, as a philosopher, do you think that you're satisfied with education we have currently? I think robotics and AI uh, challenge education to uh, to a large degree. <coughs> I think uh, our educational system is really not ready yet to yeah. to deal with this new revolution, and that's a very sad sad thing actually because. Um, it's not just about literacy, as people often call it. It's not just about learning kids, teaching kids to somehow program a computer or something. Mm-hmm. It's really uh, getting literate about how these new technologies change the society, change our daily lives, affect all aspects uh, of our life. And so being a citizen in a digital world <coughs> involves a form of, yeah, you could say, something like uh, maybe technological citizenship or something. And citizenship... Mm-hmm. Education, I think, is a very important uh, element of education. Learning, you know, teaching children to be a member of our society. Mm-hmm. And I think we're not ready for that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if it's about education and AI and robotics, <coughs> it's typically about the fears that people have that robots might be the teacher or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the wrong question for me. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, AI systems will be more and more important in, mm-hmm. uh, in education as they will yeah. in any uh, dimension of our society. But I think we should not just get uh, caught in that fear that they might take the role that the teacher has now. It's more about how will AI change teaching and change learning. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you do that, you can also ask yourself what values are at stake there? What will happen to, to the role model that the teacher has? And can a teacher still be a good role model if the teacher is assisted by AI systems? Maybe you can be the role model much better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you know that that's a very important value, then we can work towards that. Mm-hmm. And it's not only about, uh, well, somehow conveying knowledge or cognitive content or something. It yeah. can also be about an attitude. Um, and I also think, actually, that uh, AI changes education in the sense of 
monitoring ourselves, our own studying behavior, also the ways in which teachers monitor their students. The whole idea of assessment and evaluation might also change through learning analytics, yeah, which is for some people a very scary concept that you're being spied upon by uh, the institution that you do your master program at <laughs> or something. And of course, it, it can be scary and there can be biases in the algorithms, etc. So there are always uh, dangers and risks. But I think also here, if we could identify the values that are really important for us in education, in teaching and in learning, mm -hmm. then we could also use learning analytics as a way to, well, to improve our own uh, study behavior or our own teaching behavior. We can mm -hmm. discover what works best for this specific group of students or what works best for me as a person to stay motivated when I'm studying. Mm -hmm. And I think that's... Uh, a much more subtle way of trying to understand what AI is doing. It's not just a, will AI so replace a teacher, it's more yeah. how will AI change what, what teaching and learning means in our society. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting and because I think you saw like China has some strides to using anthropomorphic robotics like robotic female teacher. Do you think this is something could be really interesting to replace a human teacher as well <coughs> teacher? Since we can sometimes we can sometimes control the qualities of the teacher and what kind of value is still in the students, and this is tricky, I think in education yes, system. Yes, yes, I find it hard to imagine. But maybe uh, somebody will listen to this recording yeah. fifty years from now and say, "Oh no, it's stupid." <laughs> yeah, so maybe I see it wrong, but I don't really see the point of uh, replacing a teacher with a humanoid mm -hmm. robot. I think uh, the point is how we can use digital technologies in teaching and in learning. Mm -hmm. And trying to copy the teacher as a robot is just like designing the new car as a horse and carriage uh, mm. machine. <laughs> That's what the first cars looked like, as yeah. if they were a carriage. And of course they developed yeah. into the car that we know now, yeah, and it will keep developing into mm -hmm. an electric vehicle, etc. So I think it shows that we are still stuck to that old model of the teacher in the class and mm. the teacher has a knowledge in which is conveyed upon the class yeah. <laughs> and that we are now discovering that uh, learning and teaching are not uh, only to be placed in that context and that new technologies give a new infrastructure for those very important processes and that we can by designing new technologies also redesign the practices of teaching and, uh, and learning. Mm -hmm. So how do you see the progress of robotics AI since it started like 40 years ago? Do you think there's a real progress happening or still we have a lot of way to be done? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, uh, things are developing very fast mm -hmm. at the moment, but uh, all the science fiction-ish ideas about robots taking over the planet, well, I think we are quite far from that and I actually I'm not even so worried that that will happen to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, Why you don't anyone was worried about that? Well because uh, the fear comes from uh, an assumption or a, a basic framing of the situation that I don't share and that uh, robots are in the place of humans mm -hmm. and that there is a competition between humans and robots. And as soon as you get into that line of thinking, then mm -hmm. indeed the whole debate is framed in should you be in favor or against the robot, etc. I think the robot is just another technology, a very special one, but the steam engine is also a very special one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but a very special one because of its cognitive uh, yeah, kind of dimensions and also because of the fact it has a body, it's an embodied form of digital technology. 
uh, and then gives it very specific characteristics that we have to get used to. Um, but the humanoid character is just one of the many forms a robot could have and is not uh, determining, I think, what it, uh, <laughs> what it is. Um, what I do believe is that it is a disruptive uh, kind of technology. Just like writing was totally disruptive and the printing press was totally disruptive. I mean, writing has radically changed the functioning of our memory uh, because we don't have to remember all the things that people had to remember when mm -hmm. they were not able to write yet. But of course we have this ex externalized memory in, mm -hmm. in text now. And the printing press, well, people have often claimed that it was part of the scientific revolution. Uh, mm -hmm. Suddenly the knowledge was not locked up in monasteries anymore, copied uh, by hand by the monks. But suddenly it could be uh, well, it could circulate. Uh, everybody could get access to knowledge. It was a big, big revolution. Um, so I, I think AI uh, will have similar effects because it affects our um, decision making. It affects our uh, interpretation of the world. Uh, AI helps us to make sense of the world somehow and helps us also therefore to make choices and we have to to learn to deal with that how can we trust on the advice that we get from from an algorithm and how can we develop also ways to be critical towards the algorithms so and how can we develop new forms of critical thinking and so it's big questions and tough questions and so i mean i'm i'm not um the kind of optimist that thinks oh it will be fine just wait and mm. uh, I think there's a lot of work to be done and it, I mean there are good reasons to also be worried about it but my worries are not in uh, AI taking over the world <laughs> my worries are that we will not be able to uh, cope with the challenges AI and robotics uh, bring mm -hmm. in time and uh, that's indeed why education is so totally central because mm -hmm. if we don't educate our children in such a way that they can keep up that critical thinking mm -hmm. that they can understand that the decisions that they make are influenced by algorithms and that you can also look so critically towards the algorithms that they are biased they were trained on data sets and could have been different etc if you don't develop that uh, well spirit mm. yeah. <laughs> then we lose a lot yes that's very important point about how we can cope with advances like certain companies just dominate the field and certain algorithms be developed but do you think this kind of a struggle for some countries or governments to cope with the regulation since they are left behind the advances we have? And some people really don't understand what is going around them and just follow the lead, what is just have been done in the technology. So what do you think that, do you think that there's really a problem or concern you're afraid that some countries or governments really don't really involve it in kind of advanced technology like AI an intelligent machine. Yeah, I I totally think that. I, I, I mean, this is maybe a dimension of the discussion that's typically, um, well, that doesn't always get enough attention. Mm -hmm. And all the fears that people might have about the robots taking over the planet, people forget uh, the differences mm -hmm. all over the globe and uh, well, the inequality that we have on our planet. Also, the totally different styles of uh, yeah, so regulating or not regulating technology, mm -hmm. whereas the impact is global, right? So I think indeed, and so I mean, this is really what motivates me a lot to uh, be chairing the UNESCO Commission on the Ethical Science of Technology, because that's where those issues are uh, at the table. And we also learn that if you do ethics with a global team, with people from all over the planet, that 
that, that is a challenging thing. Mm. <laughs> it's also a challenge to be so inclusive that yeah. every voice can be heard and that also the difference can be there. It's not about reaching a consensus and then everybody thinks the same way. It's more about finding a way of dealing with diversity in, in an inclusive way. Mm. And I think that also is what we need uh, regarding AI and uh, uh, new forms of robotics, that we recognize differences and also different ethical frameworks and that we have room for that diversity of course within the limits of human rights etc mm -hmm. uh, which uh, function like, uh, yeah, like a global standard you could say yeah. and that's also actually why UNESCO is at the moment working on a recommendation uh, a global recommendation for the ethics of AI to make sure that there is some kind of a normative instrument worldwide to deal with this. We mm. cannot leave it to the market alone or to the individual governments alone. Yeah. Maybe what, I mean, if, if, if I expand on, on this, I think the discussion is now typically framed as a discussion between the East and the West with the EU in the middle or something. Yeah? So uh, on the one hand, you have the United States of America, uh, capitalism, all your data are owned by a few big companies who make uh, big money with that and they steer your behavior in, in by luring you into more consumption. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the eastern part of the world you have China, Russia, centralized economies where the state owns your data and not the companies, but they also try to steer your behavior <laughs> in mm -hmm. a different way. And then EU is supposed to be the democratic third way between the two extremes. I mean, there is a point in that, uh, that uh, in, in a sense that it's good to recognize that diversity. <laughs> but it's also disappointing for me that the EU takes this frame as a frame of moral superiority over the others, uh, as if uh, well, this is the only place where we can do ethical AI or something. I think the real challenge is to make it global, to, to find a worldwide standard where everybody can basically agree on, and which and well, which entails also respect for diversity all over the planet to deal uh, with AI and the impact of AI on our society. Yeah, that's uh, very important. And some people share the concern of fearing about capitalism because now we're living in this issue. And I don't know. Do you think that could be some way to integrate kind of socialism with capitalism? How do you think about this? It's like because I yes. think everyone is struggling at this point. Yeah. And this is maybe the hardest question, and maybe also I think there we need room for diversity. But I think the extremes are really to be avoided, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the problem I think uh, that we are facing with the influence of big tech, eh, which mm -hmm. is uh, I think showing capitalism, yeah. is that uh, the public infrastructure gets privatized. Uh, so the digital infrastructure has become a public infrastructure. We cannot be a citizen without it anymore. We, we need the internet, we need email, we need websites, social media. You cannot live without it. And that used to be the domain of the state. That's why we have a state, to ensure that there is a public infrastructure for people to live a decent life. That's not something to privatize, that's not something to make money on, it's something actually to invest in, mm -hmm. <laughs> because everybody needs it. Yeah. It's a primary good, as you would call it, uh, with a political philosophy. It's, it's a, a good you cannot do without. That's stupid to somehow privatize that, and we are doing that. Mm. <laughs> uh, and on the other extreme, if you use the infrastructure to control everybody, 
to such a degree that there is no individual freedom anymore, that is also not an attractive uh, option for many people. So I think this is the background of the story uh, that the EU should be the alternative for the East and the West. But of course, these are also caricatures. And there is a point in what the West is doing and there is a point in what the East is, uh, is doing. So what I do believe is that we need regulation and that goes against the radical economic freedom in, in the West. Mm -hmm. But it needs to be a type of regulation that also avoids the extreme of mm -hmm. the state somehow controlling the citizen. And in that sense, I must say that what the EU has been doing over the past years with the GDPR, there's a lot of critique on it, it's not ideal, but it has shown that you can regulate the digital world. And I hope that we find ways to expand that uh, on, a, on a larger scale, mm -hmm. just from the simple recognition that we, we all need this and yeah. people need to be included. Uh, also people and countries who are not so privileged to have uh, all the infrastructure that, that we have here need to be included also just to be well, a full member mm -hmm. of the worldwide community of people. Mm -hmm. So if I ask you what you suggest maybe kind of solution for this problem, what could be solution, potential solution, if you... Yeah, this is really tough. I mean, we don't have a world government. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's already yeah. very hard to have an EU. and it's, it's also falling apart at the moment, mm -hmm. right? So it's not easy. So this is really why I fully believe in that initiative of UNESCO to work towards a recommendation, a worldwide recommendation on the ethics of AI. And of course, I, I don't expect this to be a big revolution and mm -hmm. that everything will change. But the mere attempt uh, to do this on a global scale with so many countries being a member state of UNESCO and therefore also subscribing to the urgency of this, also subscribing to the intention to implement such a recommendation into national policies. I, think th I mean, yeah, th there is not much more we mm -hmm. have at the moment than, than this. And I think this is also where it, where it starts, right? In, in, in the minds of people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so if we reach an agreement on what the recommendation should be, uh, which is so inspiring that everybody can, can sign and say, okay, this is what we should do. Then every uh, member state can find their own way of dealing with it. But at least uh, then there is a basis on which we can uh, build mm -hmm. further. So if I ask you what do you think are the most misconceptions you have found in robotics and AI, some people understood something in the wrong way Misconceptions. <laughs> Misconceptions about yeah. robots. Oh wow! I think uh, they're all in the confusion of robots mm -hmm. and humans, right? So uh, I think all the words we use to express how much robots are starting to look like us <laughs> are also the source of the misconceptions. So if we speak about artificial intelligence, so, I mean, yeah. What is intelligence? Can we really say a robot is intelligent? Mm -hmm. and, uh, smart is also such a word. And smart devices. What does it mean to be smart? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I think it's a misconception to, to really think that AI is intelligent. And the problem is that, of course, the meaning of the word intelligence might also uh, change so much that we uh, even forget what it meant mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, how much more intelligent humans are <laughs> than AI systems are. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, um, this is, of course, resulting from the, the similarities between uh, mm -hmm. AI robotics on the one hand and humans on the other hand. And that's where all the confusions are. I, I've, I've, had some interaction with a very interesting Japanese professor uh, uh, who works in robotics, Professor Asada. Mm -hmm. 
maybe you know him, but so he works on AI systems and robots that can feel pain, he says. So he doesn't want to let them develop in a cognitive way, but more in a in a way of yeah, receiving stimuli that mm -hmm. are uh, somehow unpleasant or that are pleasant. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you say that you make a robot that feels pain, you think, whoa, uh, how should we deal with that? And maybe we need robot rights to protect the robots against pain. <laughs> maybe we do, <laughs> but uh, of course, a robot that feels pain, what do you mean? If you say feeling pain, and can we really understand what it would mean for a robot to feel pain? Can a robot feel pain? I, I don't know. I think this is a real tough question. I, I, I cannot help but think that they do not feel pain like we <laughs> feel yeah. feel pain. Okay, okay. But this is, I, I think, one of the many misconceptions. Yeah, that's why I will ask you. That's very interesting point about yeah. it's about semantics and the words we use, yes. like. That's why people, yeah, just argue about whether robots have to really could feel pain on other yeah. things. It's hoax. It's yeah. not yeah, exactly. So yeah. I don't know who is responsible for kind of like naming that robot can feel pain. Well, we do, as a human, of course, we have more complicated system than what we have in robotics. But yeah. you agree it's, it's, it's not makes sense to you. The robots can feel well, pain. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm happy the professor Asada chooses that expression because mm -hmm. it really puts you on the spot of trying to understand what the differences are. Mm -hmm. And indeed, from the perspective of the, of, of the robot, he is developing a robot that is somehow programmed to experience something that's unpleasant or mm -hmm. that is pleasant, so something that it wants to avoid and something that it likes, mm -hmm. or that, that, it, that it seeks. And so it, it does make sense. Uh, so the word, uh, yeah, how do you say the the similarity mm -hmm. uh, helps us to understand what we are doing. At the same time, we should not uh, mistake the one for the other. So mm -hmm. it's also really important to let that be an occasion to to ask ourselves what we mean by feeling pain, and that maybe the word feeling <laughs> yeah. is already uh, different for a robot than it is for us, and of course maybe mm. different. Somehow between many robots, <laughs> and it's yeah. not, there's not only one way of mm. feeling, whatever that might be, mm -hmm. for a robot. I think. Do you think this misleading people who are not involved in technology businesses is like a hype? Yes. So this your hype already? Yeah. Well, I think that's part of the problem that uh, people who are not in the field and they hear these expressions and yeah. they think, oh wow, they are already that far that they, they well, now we have robots that can feel pain what's next <laughs> right but of course the robot doesn't feel pain like we feel pain mm -hmm. and it's 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 a highly experimental and it's just another way of letting robots develop themselves but of course it does raise ethical questions and it, it mm -hmm. is potentially very disruptive what ethical questions as a philosopher you can address to this technology well for me uh, of course the, the ultimate question is is it, if we would indeed reach a level where we can say that the robot feels pain and we can't the robot to feel pain it raises the question of robot rights which mm -hmm. is an absurd question maybe should we sort of protect robots against humans <laughs> do they have the right to be protected is, mm -hmm. is there something like a dignified robot life mm -hmm. uh, yeah <laughs> I don't know I, I didn't mean, consider any question because now we're like half societies human abuse robots or robot maybe abuse human like killer robots yeah. it's yeah. like yeah. it's just yeah. Humiliation to be killed by a machine, yeah. and that's kind of people. So, in both sides, um, how you see the progress in addressing ethical question? It is taken yeah. seriously. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it is. But also here, I think the question always 
focuses on humans versus robots. Mm -hmm. uh, and that separation of humans and technologies is, oh, I mean, th th this is the main topic of my whole work. Mm. <laughs> it's always bothering us. Yeah, so I think the real issue, the real ethical issues are about how killer robots uh, change how we deal with warfare. Mm -hmm. uh, so the question is not should a robot be allowed or not to kill somebody else. I think the question is how, how does the presence or the possibility of a killer robot affect the decisions that people make in warfare? Does it make us morally numb or something? I mean, do we get indifferent? Mm. Because we can let the robot do the work, but it's still us making the decisions. Yeah. Uh, so it is not just a robot taking the decision to do something, then we have always made the decision to let the robot do that for us. Mm -hmm. And so it's always a human being who, who, who keeps being somehow responsible. I, I was just uh, a reviewer at the PhD Defense at the Free University of Amsterdam, with a very, very good PhD uh, thesis about uh, autonomous weapons. Mm -hmm and decision-making in situations of warfare. And her conclusion was also that the real question is not should we ban uh, autonomous weapons or not. The question is how should we learn to deal with decision-making in situations where autonomous weapons play a role? Mm -hmm. how, how, how does it affect the decisions that we make and how can we deal with that in a responsible way? Because the, the boundary is, of course, really thin between an autonomous, a fully autonomous weapon and a yeah. party. I mean, there are already bombs that can seek their own targets, etc. Yeah. yeah, is it autonomous? Yeah, not as much as a as a killer robot, but yeah, it's it's all gradual. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the real thing is, what does it do to our responsibility, and how can we still apply humanitarian law in situations where these kinds of weapons mm -hmm. are involved? Mm -hmm. I like that approach because then you take it back to the human world. Yeah. You, you avoid the trap of the science fiction scenarios where suddenly everything has to be done again because mm -hmm. now the robots become autonomous. No, of course, they're new and they are disruptive. But we don't start from scratch. We, we have human rights, we have humanitarian law, we, we mm -hmm. have ethical values and we should just, well, just, it's quite a challenge, but yeah. what, what, what we should do is try to, to rethink, reconfigure what they can mean mm -hmm. in this new digital world. Mm -hmm. But realistically speaking, do you think that like make military companies or people who has power and like military weaponized uh, munitions, do you think they really consider to reduce the uh, technological advances they have in, in warfare technology? Because I think it's like imbalance of power. Some region has mm. the advanced technology and others don't have. And I think in the end of the day, who is losing that is a human being who is affected by this kind of. Uh, uh, advances. So I don't know through your experience. Do you think that there is a real response from these people who are involved in this kind of advances of warfare technology? Yes and no. I mean, uh, I think some people uh, in charge uh, will use any weapon that they can use, and um, the story for autonomous weapons, of course, is an easy one. And you don't have to risk the lives of soldiers, etc. So mm -hmm. who can possibly be against that? Yeah. yeah so that's. Uh, uh, but I think um, many people are really very much aware of the downsides of it, and also of the the, the the highly problematic character of killing in the first place. Right. So in a situation of war, uh, uh, people have got to get used to the idea that killing is part of that. Yeah. But then there's humanitarian law. There is. I mean, you don't just kill <laughs> whatever you can kill. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, of course, it's a nasty subject. <laughs> I don't like to talk about it, <laughs> but we have to do it. Um, so I think um, there are many people in science also who are very aware of their moral duties. And just like in chemistry, yeah. uh, there are many chemists who just do not want to work with chemical weapons. And actually, chemical weapons are also uh, uh, on a worldwide scale uh, on, on the blacklist. And this is just not what you do. Um, and of course, some regimes will keep doing it, but uh, the, the same for atomic weapons. Of course, well, they, they, they are returning a little bit, uh, nuclear weapons, but still, there's a very wide agreement that this is, is not the type of weapon that we should use, and researchers also refuse to work on it. So the same thing you see, of course, with the robotics, and mm -hmm. there is uh, the petition against autonomous weapons, against killer robots, etc. I think that is good. And uh, there is not much more, obviously, we can do yeah. than, than that. But we scientists are providing the basis and the infrastructure for this type of technology. Mm -hmm. So if I ask you, what is something you consider most scary or mind-blowing about robotics and AI? Something you see is really scary and something maybe mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's a tough one. What do I find really scary <laughs> hmm. yeah you know I, I'm, I'm, I'm not this is not the framework from which I typically look at technologies <laughs> I mean the, the most scary thing for me would be that we would end up in a world where our own critical thinking is not functioning anymore mm. uh, I think that that's really uh, maybe the most essential aspect of being human, our freedom, and that we are not just running a program, but we can always think, uh, are we doing the right thing, or should we do it differently, yeah. who am I, where am I, and could I be somewhere else, or something, and if we lose that, because uh, AI gives us such a deep basis for thinking that we, well, we lose the critical uh, approach mm. to AI itself, uh, then, well, I think, that would basically be the end of humankind, oh. <laughs> uh, even though we would still live as human beings. Mm. But uh, the human mind needs to be free and critical. But I'm actually not so much afraid that that will happen. <laughs> yeah. I think we can always uh, step outside the situation, always start a new, unless somebody takes out our brains or manipulates our, <laughs> our brains or something. And so it is more um, that the, the way in which our minds are functioning is mm -hmm. changing, what our values are. Uh, what we expect from intelligence, etc., and that's something that we should uh, take responsibility for, mm -hmm. and that's what we still still can do because we still have the capacity of critical thinking and mm -hmm. freedom. That's reasoning. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You, you you also want to hear something mind blowing? <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> it's it's really yeah. hard. Um, well, I mean, what would be really mind blowing? I think for me would be a. Um, uh, voice assistant that passes the Turing test. <laughs> that I could really have a conversation mm. with a machine. And I, I think that's that's a realistic scenario. I mean, you can already have a conversation with uh, Siri or mm. whatever. It's not very deep and it's quite, quite predictable at some point. But uh, I think that's interesting. Uh, and that's, I mean, that might also have a scary dimension. That if, if, if we find it ever harder to distinguish, if we cannot tell if we're on the phone with a human or with a machine, 
and that that's a problem i mean we we might need to to have rules for that that mm. artificial agents always Id- identify themselves <laughs> just like yeah. we say our names when we answer the phone that they say oh by the way i'm i'm, I'm not a human <laughs> but it's also a, a mind-blowing thing for me because i think of, of course in in speech yeah. there's a lot of humanity in it and yeah. only after you have had a conversation with somebody you know somebody and having a conversation with a machine it would be just very exciting to <laughs> to get to know yeah. the machine and to see what it thinks and why it thinks the way it thinks <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly this is a big concern and like a deep facebook they have a deep fake videos and images yes. and this is something of course is yeah. scary for many people it is very scary and can be used for not good intention uh, yes now the deep fakes and this and that's indeed that's that that is very scary i mean if if, if we speak about that kind of horror scenarios <laughs> then it's not about yeah. the kind of technologies only it's about how technologies um, um, destroy the public sphere yeah so deep fake technologies uh, if they would really uh, enter society and we would not have ways to tell uh, fake from real then yeah then i mean you take out a cornerstone mm-hmm. <laughs> of the the entire uh, societal construction that, that that we have and the same for me would also be in total privatization of the digital world yeah, so for instance if google and and, uh, and and apple would run healthcare because they i mean uh, out of free will i'm working my apple watch as well I'm, mm-hmm. I'm feeding apple with data all day yeah and they develop so much knowledge that if that would indeed excavate the system that at least we here in, in this little country of the netherlands have uh, with healthcare insurance and solidarity mm-hmm. uh, in healthcare and if you really get ill then there's always money and you will be helped mm-hmm. <laughs> if we uh, excavate that whole system by giving a few big companies all the power and that, that would also be a horror scenario but that's not in the technology only mm-hmm. that's in how we as humans succeed in dealing with technology and there the problem is much more in capitalism i would say than in the, than in robotics <laughs> yeah indeed yeah. Yeah. so i'd like to go back to highlighted about the critical thinking i think this is a really important point how do you think about dehumanizing workplace because there's like companies like Unilever try to recruit through uh, a machine and it's like struggling that is something maybe how you can imagine the cooperation between a machine and a human and workplace yeah. they can compete with each other or cooperate with each other and it's still maybe I don't know if you agree or not it's like scary because you're losing the human qualities because we don't have a machine like have the consciousness like you understand or understand the old scenario and the context of how you would see it so do you mean that Unilever is recruiting people to work with machines or no just as an interview first interview you have two questions and based on answering you will be screened to other steps so the recruiting by machine yeah exactly okay well there I think I mean maybe it's boring to give a nuanced answer <laughs> but still I think there is a risk and there is also a big opportunity in mm. that so I think it has been shown many times that implicit bias plays a huge role in selection implicit bias so nobody wants to have an explicit bias nobody wants to discriminate against people uh, with a specific ethnic background or mm-hmm. women or uh, whatever but it happens all the time 
uh, and that has to do just simply with what your last name is, uh, how you look, if, if you're uh, ugly or pretty in the taste of the committee, th those things matter. Yeah. <laughs> and I think if we can take these out uh, by using an algorithm, that would be fantastic. But of course it would be crazy to say, okay, let the algor algorithm do the selection, <laughs> mm. <laughs> because then you would indeed give up uh, a lot of uh, subtlety that is needed for humans. And of course, the people you select have to work with other humans. And uh, while well, being able to collaborate uh, does not only have to do with your CV, it also yeah. has to do a lot with your personality mm -hmm. and how well you can get along. Uh, so then I would rather have an AI system observing the interaction between the people who might have to work together in the future <laughs> and giving an advice and say, well, actually, I noticed that, that yeah. uh, there is some irritation. And then you think, oh, actually, uh, the algorithm is right. <laughs> we should never do that. That, that would be a, a good way. Mm -hmm. of, uh, of doing this. But of course, uh, we all know the example of what was it Amazon that used yeah. uh, that with a totally biased data set and then suddenly they ended up only recruiting the same type of people. Mm -hmm. So I think that the fact that we tell that story and that's not a hoax but it's a true story mm -hmm. also shows that we learn. So and, and this is I think what we have to do. So you can use a story to say, oh we should never get AI in the recruitment process because uh, this is what you get. Now that, that's the wrong approach. No, we are learning to deal with AI in a good way. And that means that we have to uh, be more open and transparent about the data sets, that we also have to be critical towards the data set, that we have to, to uh, learn on the fly, and we have to monitor it and see what's happening. We, we, we should not see AI as an oracle that yeah. uh, brings the truth forever. It's, it's also just an algorithm yeah. that was trained on just human data. that <laughs> is yeah. still just learning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think this is a very interesting point because I think because some people like hyping about AI just algorithm in every day but the point is just we see it affecting in our daily life that's why we have to be aware of what is happening yeah. and who these people is developing yeah. but it's kind of discussion happening now because some people in academia who is responsible for these advances and in other side of companies they like this kind of discussion gatekeeping that any critical thinking any ideas, new ideas or explanation advances, it's just like, it's like they don't give you opportunity to that. And that's issue also because I don't know if you think realistically we have a room for critical thinking because most of AI advances is going through academia or industry, it's just in the both sides, there is like no space for critical thinking sometimes. Do you agree with that? I'm not sure actually, to be mm -hmm. honest. I'm, I don't want to be in, uh, the positive guide per se and I yeah. also don't want to want to raise the impression that I think it is all fine and there is no problem. There are a lot of problems. Yeah. But the problem is not so big that we uh, that, that there is no, no room for critical thinking. I think uh, actually society is thinking a lot about AI at the moment. I mean, you stumble over the news that every company or government is making codes on AI. Yeah. So I think we are very, very, very uh, well aware of it. The thing is that we, up till now, have failed to make it concrete. And so typically you end up with a list of uh, the same principles, transparency, accountability, explainability, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I even heard of students playing bingo with it. <laughs> oh, well, transparency, bingo. <laughs> and so th that's not enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, 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 it's okay that we are aware that these are the issues, mm -hmm. but it's actually, for me, those lists are more lists of issues than of uh, uh, ethical standards or something. Mm -hmm. The real urge 
uh, the, the, well, the urgency is in how to make it concrete. So how can we get this in practice, in uh, using AI systems, in designing AI systems, in organizing the environment in which the AI systems have to function? Mm -hmm. in, in Holland we have a, a ECP, it's a, I don't even know what the, the, the abbreviation mm -hmm. used to stand for, but it's, they call themselves a platform for the information society. And uh, they also have an, an, an ethical uh, uh, working group, which I am chairing. Mm -hmm. And with that group, we, we made a framework uh, for the accompaniment of technology, we call it. Ethical accompaniment of technology. That's a very basic framework, which intends to do exactly this. So don't get stuck in the list of values. But the question is, once you have a concrete algorithm, for instance, in a recruitment process, mm -hmm. um, try to give a detailed description of well where it functions, what kind of implications it mm -hmm. could have. And then, then try to identify the, the values at stake. And so yeah. we want to have a fair selection. We also want to have good people working there. With, uh, and then try to see the, the impact that the system has on the selection process and try to see what values are at stake and uh, with that, yeah, maybe even how they might change meaning, how they need to be redefined. And as soon as you know that, you can try to think, okay, what is now needed in the mm -hmm. process of using it, implementing it in its environment and designing the system mm -hmm. to, to keep those values in place. And that's a much more fruitful way of dealing with that. And that's where critical thinking is, uh, well, you could say, implemented all the way down. This is a tool uh, to keep up critical thinking and also to inspire critical thinking. And also in the ways in which we then deal with the algorithms, probably uh, the most central value for many people will still be mm -hmm. the value of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I ask you, what do you think the most challenges that could face robotics and AI? And I forgot to ask you how you would see intelligent robots. Do you think, how do you think about intelligent robot definition from philosophy uh, of technology? First. <laughs> um, I think um, a robot that is not only cognitively uh, in intelligent but also socially and maybe ultimately also emotionally somehow <laughs> and by that I mean that uh, uh, a robot should not just have all kinds of capacities to interpret its situation etc but also to interpret the behavior of other people and also to express behavior that people can understand mm -hmm. that's the social robotics theme and the emotional intelligence is maybe part of that that it also uh, well understands how how people feel and that it can um, adapt itself to that that it can deal with the emotions of people at least and maybe even express mm -hmm its own emotions, whatever that may be, which I don't think exists, but uh, which at least need to be faked to be mm -hmm. a good tool. Just yeah. like a knife needs to be sharp, <laughs> sometimes a robot needs to express emotions mm -hmm. to, to, to be part of the social setting. Mm -hmm. yeah. But this is an emotion really resonates with the human emotion or just expressions? It's just an expression, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an animated puppet, yeah. as it were. But of course, the boundaries uh, keep shifting. Yes? I mean, it's like an asymptotic relation. There will never be humans, <laughs> probably. But as soon as you can indeed interact with a voice assistant, uh, and you have quite a realistic conversation, mm -hmm. and emotions can start to play a role in a conversation. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's not a human, yeah. uh, and 
it's also really hard to to imagine the personality behind it. Of course, that I mean, if you really have a good conversation, then uh, yeah, you could get to know yeah. the character of someone. I'm not sure how deep we could go, but we go deeper and deeper. And so yeah. we are approaching, yeah. <laughs> even though there is this gap that we uh, I think mm-hmm. will will never really cross. But do you think that human can really develop emotion to a machine or robot? Oh yeah. Like movie hair, that is something. Oh that is, yeah. Because some I people, think so. I think, we suffer from loneliness, whether in ages. Yeah. yeah. But of course, in, in her, that was a, not a relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so he he was in love. Yeah. <laughs> but it it was not a relationship where you go through crises and mm. you have to raise children maybe yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. you lose people around you you deal with it in a different way and so that, that's maybe also I mean somebody in our group has done a lot of work on sex robots and also yeah. felt yeah I mean and people see that as the, the, the fear that ultimately they might be like humans but mm-hmm. love is so much more than only sex I mean you can yeah. have sex with a robot but that doesn't mean that you really have a love relationship with a yeah. robot and that's what I felt with her also yeah. from, from the other angle maybe so I do believe that there are effective relations between mm-hmm. humans and technology I mean all the way down if you mm-hmm. look at how, how well people care for their cars yeah. <laughs> I can hardly imagine it and of course they don't recognize the car as a person yeah. but they are very attached to it and if you would hurt the car they, they would be very very mad yeah. <laughs> right so and of course there are these examples of uh, soldiers and their uh, weapons mm-hmm. uh, their autonomous weapons even and then there's this story of a, of a robotic system and that they, they really they, they gave it the name and they didn't want to be separated from it yeah. <coughs> So maybe the problem is not uh, in the question whether or not a robot can be uh, well, really like a human. The problem is in our own concept that we make this very harsh and strict distinction between mm-hmm. humans and non-humans. Yeah. And that's what I always like so much when I speak to people from Japan, uh, where that boundary is thinner, where that is not such a big deal. That is just not a very relevant question. Yeah. <laughs> Animism uh, mm. is more normal in the sense that it's not that you really believe that things have a mind or something but that they are not just instruments that you can just discard and throw away but there is some intrinsic value to objects as well and that's much more normal in the, in the Japanese culture mm-hmm. and what that makes it easier to cross the boundary a bit maybe the problem is in well our boundary yeah. the boundary in our thinking rather than in the question if we are really designing new humans or something. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. But I think when you say about your father and that much of you that you wish that the robotics can feed him and then oh, yeah. his head more can something or something like that. Yeah. So it's just something I think we can relate it to the same because you wish to have something like that. And I think there's elder people feeling loneliness and I don't know how you see and, and if we speak of, about different culture rather than yeah. Japan. Yeah. So do you think this could solve a problem? No, so I do not think that robots can really solve the problem of loneliness. <laughs> Just like I do not think that the TV makes people less lonely. I do believe that lonely people benefit a lot from TVs, mm-hmm. <laughs> that they can watch a TV show so that yeah. they suffer less from their loneliness. Yeah. 
uh, and I think at that level you should also look at uh, robots that accompany people. They are not human accompaniment, uh, but they can be nice to have around. Yeah. <laughs> right? So they, they are not uh, a real substitute. Except maybe for a specific group of people, but then you speak about people with uh, uh, some kind of a mental condition, or maybe autistic disorder, or people uh, with Down syndrome. There are, there are very nice examples of uh, 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 robots uh, living in the house of people with such a condition, uh, where people from, well, for, for instance, sometimes really open up. Yeah, there's a beautiful video of a, a person with a, quite an artistic, uh, deeply artistic uh, disorder, if you may call it like that, mm. who uh, suddenly started to tell his own life story to the to the robot, and who really, uh, because it was not a human, but it was human-like, yeah. <laughs> and, and it didn't, I think it was uh, like a Pepperish, uh, mm -hmm. I think Pepper was the platform for that robot, and it, it, so it was totally programmed for social interaction. And the person didn't want to separate from the robot anymore. And of course, he didn't think the robot was a person. He knew perfectly well that it was a robot. That was the whole point. Mm. <laughs> but because it was a humanish robot, yeah. uh, which was not a human, because he would never have told his life story to a human, but it was a robot, he could open up. So I think in those settings, robots can be uh, very interesting and very important as a therapeutic device, you could say. But that also means that they are never a real substitute. It was exactly because of the fact that it was not a real human that mm. it could do this this uh, job. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, how you see the lay people understand robotics? If you speak about with family or friends, how do they perceive robotics in AI? Ooh, it's it's hard because I've not investigated this, <laughs> so uh, I can only give you intuitions and guesses. <laughs> uh, but I think, um, yeah, there is a group of people who is fascinated by it, and there is a group of people who uh, is afraid of it. <laughs> yeah. I think typically the imagery in popular culture plays a big role in how people think of it, and uh, so I think people. Uh, think that much more is possible than actually is possible <laughs> and uh, the idea that the robot uh, with AI and would just walk around and live life like a human of course then we are very far from that uh, if we would ever reach that point but uh, I think in the end um, if I speak to people if I give talks yeah then uh, I, I I've never met somebody with totally unrealistic uh, ideas. It's, 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 I think it's, it's more about do you simply trust the whole situation? Mm -hmm. oh, it's fascinating, how can we do that? Or should we be afraid? And then I must say the fear is bigger <laughs> than, than the excitement. <laughs> but that's maybe also why people come and listen to a talk about robotics. But uh, it's interesting how much uh, fear, especially AI, is causing in our society more than for instance fear about global warming which i think mm -hmm. is a much bigger threat <laughs> to uh, humankind yeah. than the robotics i mean th this might be the least of our problems <laughs> in, yeah. the, in the very near future if it's not already the present if you look at uh, what, what, what's happening in the world at the moment so um, yes i'm not sure if i have a general picture but uh, mm -hmm. if there is a picture is that people are afraid that they lose control Mm -hmm. That's it. Uh, so 
the systems develop capacities that run out of control. We cannot stop it anymore, and they do things that are very intrusive, uh, things that only humans used to be able to do. And I think that's where the where the fear is, mm -hmm. like the sorcerer's apprentice, and you set free a power that you cannot control anymore. And then, uh, so if I ask you how we can make sure the technology will evolve in whether robotics or AI, we're going to be beneficial to humanity as a whole. How we can make sure that? Uh, yeah. We need to um, see technology as something social. We need to stop separating humans and technologies, separating society and technology. We should really treat technology as an aspect of our society, as something societal, cultural, uh, with deep implications for society and humankind. And I, I think the biggest threat to good ethics of technology is the instrumentalization of technology, to think that technology is just another tool and it's only the humans mm -hmm. who determine whether we use the tool for something good or something bad. Technology is not so neutral or so innocent because it changes our goals. Yeah. <laughs> and the means we use affects the goals that we have up to the point that even the meaning of our values changes all the time through technologies. What, what dignified dying or dignified suffering is at the moment has totally changed because of all the medical technology that we have. And we would never extract a, teeth, uh, a, a tooth without any anesthesia. Mm -hmm. or something would be immoral. Uh, there were days that it was immoral to use anesthesia. Yeah. So technology changes us and it's really hard for us to accept that, to accept that we are the sorcerer's apprentice, <laughs> that we are continuously setting free powers that affect us and that are not to be controlled mm -hmm. all the way down. Of course, uh, we uh, should see that in order to avoid that they take control over us. It's more a process of mutual development, where the technologies we develop change us as well and also change the basis from which we evaluate them, mm -hmm. but we still need to keep evaluating them, redesigning them. So what we need to do, I think, is not to uh, keep asking ourselves, do we or do we not want this new technology, but more how can we raise the technology, how can we educate it, how, how, we can, how can we make it a member of our society, how can we uh, somehow, yeah, yeah, how do you say, accompany its... Uh, its path uh, through society. And then uh, the most important thing, I think, is to, to keep an eye, to, to, to keep keeping an eye <laughs> on the values mm. that are at stake. I think a value-based approach, to my experience, has proven to be the most effective one because everybody can speak about values. It's, it's harder if you start from deep ethical theories, uh, the categorical imperative of Kant or whatever, mm. uh, utilitarianism. Of course, if you want to go deeper, you can do that. But I think the first question is, what is at stake for us? What do we really find important? What do we not want to lose? Or what are important things, elements of a dignified human life? And how can technology contribute to flourishing of our society? And uh, only if we do that, we can uh, work with uh, AI or uh, new forms of robotics in a, in a good way. Mm -hmm. I'm sometimes trying to explain explain my own approach to ethics as something like positive ethics mm -hmm. uh, which doesn't mean that I'm positive about any new technology and that we should be positive rather than negative that, that, that's not what I mean to say it's more like in psychology you also have positive psychology which means that you do not only want to focus on diseases and uh, dysfunctioning and malfunctioning and something like uh, how do you know uh, how do you say it? 
always repairing what is broken. Mm -hmm. It's more about how to create the conditions for the flourishing of the human person. And in the same way, I think ethics should not only be about uh, banning things and being against things and uh, asking yourself, should we or should we not do it? That's a very legalistic interpretation of ethics. Ethics can also be about how to shape the conditions for flourishing. Mm. So what are the values at stake in a world of AI and robotics? And how can we take these values so seriously that we can embed them in the design, in the implementation, in the use of these technologies so that we actually have AI for good? Mm -hmm. I think that's the real thing that we need. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Because, for example, Tesla car, with sober driving cars, some groups argue that the technology is not ready yet to be applied in a real-life application. As we see lately, there's a crash happened. And some others, okay, we, we can go for it and ready to use it. I don't know how from ethical agency is it, it's like shaping how to make sure it's for good. If we apply this scenario, how we can make shape this, then there is, it's, it's complicated since capitalism on one side yeah. and and you will on the side and people, the user and the customers. So yeah. like this scenario happening nowadays. Yeah, well, for self-driving cars, it's also, I mean, this shows how complicated it can be because there are so many dimensions in uh, the whole field of transport that are important. Yes, of course, there's an environmental dimension. Mm -hmm. There's also a, a, a dimension of, I think, the quality of life. So mm -hmm. uh, what's the time of travel between your home and your work? <laughs> or mm -hmm. how many family members can you visit? I mean, it's, it's a very important value to be mobile in our society. And of course, then there are values simply about life and death. Mm -hmm. and so we lose many people in traffic every year. Uh, apparently, that's the price that we are prepared to pay for the mm -hmm. cars. That every day or so, somebody, well, not every day, I think, well, maybe almost within our country, somebody dies in traffic. So then I think, okay, if you look at, through this lens to autonomous cars, then um, the question is, how can we keep up all these values? And then one accident with a Tesla is not uh, enough uh, to have a good discussion. I think it, it, it can even have a very nasty boomerang effect. <laughs> I mean, mm. uh, half of the people, I, I, I understood, maybe more than half of the people who die in an accident are not people in a car, just people who happen to be on the street, on a bicycle, walking people who do not even benefit from the car, right? So apparently we sacrifice a few hundred people every year as a society mm -hmm. for those people who want to have a car rather than just take the train or use a bicycle. Yeah. <laughs> and so we could end that situation probably with autonomous cars. And of course, there might be an accident every now and then, maybe less accident. Maybe in 30 years from now, we will wonder why humans were ever allowed to, to drive a car mm -hmm. because it's so unsafe. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but of course, then you have to accept explicitly that people will, will die. And that's the whole nasty element of this discussion. I think now we still call it an accident. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is an accident and the driver can yeah, I mean, doesn't know what to do. But I think, uh, yeah, if you have to write an algorithm that, uh, well, chooses to kill somebody <laughs> because yeah. that's the most rational choice in that moment, yeah. then, yeah, it becomes a choice rather than just uh, yeah. fate. 
And then the question is, what is the right choice? Yeah. Should an innocent uh, person on the street die, or should the people in the car die because they could also have taken the train? <laughs> and I think yeah. this then shows how how nasty it is. Yeah. So the self-driving car is not just a utopian solution to anything. Mm. No, it, it it's uh, it's uh, yeah. dirty hands. <laughs> yeah, that's me about the trust, about uh, trusting a robot or machine. Yes, it's this kind of. I don't know how in this scenario the trust and also some people state any significant decision should be made by a human and not be delegated to a machine. How you would see this? Yes, I think I, I agree. But the problem is <laughs> that the, the, the basis on which we make the decisions mm -hmm. is influenced by the machines. So mm -hmm. that you cannot separate them totally. So I think delegating a decision, especially a big decision and certainly decisions about life and death, Delegating it to a machine is a very, very bad idea. But that, I mean, saying that does not imply that humans who make that decision make it totally autonomously and uh, without any interference of technology. I think this is where the real challenge is. How do technologies affect the decisions that we make about life and death? As I, as I, but I told you about the PhD thesis about autonomous mm -hmm. weapons and its implications for humanitarian law. This is exactly what the conclusions of this thesis were. Uh, because um, the question is, what do the central concepts in law mean mm -hmm. <laughs> in relation to such a machine? And here also, uh, so how do uh, the decisions about life and death uh, get affected by the ways in which, um, well, AI helps us to interpret the, the value of a human life or something? Or the, 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 uh, how, how does it help us to assess the, the impact of the choices that, that we make? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would like to skew this because everything now is through <laughs> AI and Facebook and Twitter. It's just kind of spoiled. I think it becomes more isolated. So some people ask a question. I think many, many people ask us do you think we're living in simulation in general? <laughs> because it's just like it's, you have this kind of question sometimes. Like yes, yes. It's top it. How, how real is our world anyway? Yeah, because it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I don't think we live in a simulation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think our, our uh, reality mm -hmm. <laughs> is partly the result of fictional things, or at least of, of non factual things. So we can only understand the world through interpretive frameworks and um, social media are uh, an extreme uh, example of interpretive frameworks uh, they, they, and of course their impact is also deeper than just giving us the concepts with which we think mm -hmm. but uh, also if you live in well if, if you used to live in the middle ages where your whole interpretive framework would be uh, the frame, uh, at least here in Europe, the framework of, uh, of the Church of Christianity and your own plays in God's creation. And uh, yeah, did you live in a simulation? No, it was not a simulation. It was very real, but it was not just the neutral facts. There, there are no neutral facts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the technologies that we use, that that, that 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 are the technologies of our time, help to shape how we understand the world. Help to shape how we define ourselves, what our identities are, how we define ethical values, etc. So in that sense, technologies are a very fundamental basis for our reality, <laughs> which doesn't make it a simulation. It makes it very real, but also very technologically mediated. Yeah. 
So, I'm some question about China, some because people were really worried about using algorithm like re-identification to get personal data of humans. I don't know what you think about this kind of preaching the and accessing data of citizen. How we yes. Ah, it's a tough one <laughs> because, uh, of course, uh, I think a good democracy uh, requires a good demarcation of the power of the of the government. Yeah. Right? So individual freedom is a very important element uh, of a democracy, I think. And there is no democracy, there is no power of the people if uh, the government overpowers the people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the interesting thing, though, is that you can have different explanations of democracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you can have a very capitalistic idea of freedom. It's just freedom to consume. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can actually say, well, uh, our democracy should be in the service of uh, the future generations as well. They are part of the demos, uh, that's, mm-hmm. uh, of, of the people yeah. that should have the power. So that means that we also have to, to limit ourselves and that could also mean that the state has to help us to limit ourselves in order to make room for future generations maybe uh, one flight a year is enough Mm -hmm. and we should have uh, uh, well a state that actually can check if you book your second flight Mm -hmm. because the planet cannot that's uh, just an extreme example so um, there is not just uh, one unified definition of democracy Uh, that's why it's also so interesting it's it's a living concept it's i mean what does it mean to give the power to the people and not to an elite uh, that well, it raises the question of who has to be represented in that power and i think this is the fascinating impact of technology in our culture nowadays that um, that whole issue of representation changes it's in in, in that sense uh, new technology are also really disruptive if you look at climate change Mm-hmm. Who, who, who has to be represented in debates about something like climate engineering? If we, if, if, if we could uh, uh, bring particles in, in the stratosphere to, uh, to reflect part of the sunlight, to reduce global warming, mm-hmm. it's also a risky thing. So how do you justify the risk, the interest of future generations, or also the interests of the oceans, of, of, mm-hmm. of the land? I mean, should animals have moral rights as well uh, how, how do you represent uh, the, mm. the, 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 the entities who are at stake in, in a good democracy that's, a, that's not a self-evident thing that, that's what I want to say and uh, I think that's also why technologies at the moment are simply urging us even to rethink what democracy means mm. uh, a totally liberal democracy uh, leading to radical capitalism uh, has proven to result in, uh, well, exhaustion of the planet <laughs> and yeah. maybe to a point uh, of, of no return already, uh, and which would be terrible. <laughs> so maybe we need another definition of what that freedom then is and how that freedom should be linked to, to solidarity and to the interests of other people. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, I would like to ask you we are going to the end. Um, do you think that which demographic regions are interested in robotics and AI? Which demographic regions? The demographic regions interested in robotics and AI? <laughs> <Your experience. laughs> wow. wow. Uh, well, I think the interest is quite wide. Mm. 
uh, I certainly have noticed that within the UNESCO context uh, when speaking about AI. Mm -hmm. uh, also in the less industrialized countries or in the developing countries that there is a lot of interest, but uh, sometimes people of, of course have different worries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, and they, they, they sometimes lack a, a good infrastructure for AI and robotics to function anyway, mm -hmm. right? So uh, I'm not sure uh, if I could say, well, it's, it's just a hobby of the West or of the East or something. I think um, it's a global development and I think uh, most regions of the world want to be part of the world and not only regional. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and therefore, I think each region in its own way has uh, an interest there. Mm -hmm. But do you have data about this? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, I would like to ask you to think ego in general, if, if it's kind of built by technology. Ego is important, the ego. The ego of the human being. Yeah. While you develop a robotics for AI, sometimes you, you don't listen to others and you just go for what you think. Ah, so do you think you mean the people who are developing the robots? Yeah, or maybe if you have different context for the fin definition of ego, but do you think ego is important in some scenarios? I think not more important than robotics than anywhere else, but it's definitely important. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe that's indeed also uh, something that's different in different places in the world. Mm -hmm. But I think the urge of being successful, <laughs> etc. Is definitely there. Uh, it's maybe. I mean, there are different versions of it. Yeah. I, I think maybe if you explain ego as a desire to be impactful, and so to to leave a positive trace in the mm -hmm. world, <laughs> then uh, it's not only driven by the need for recognition. It mm -hmm. can also be driven by the need to contribute to a better world. And I think that's really sincerely what I notice when I do some ethical work with smaller startup companies. that They start almost always from a very societal uh, goal. <laughs> they mm -hmm. they want to make a better world. They want to contribute positively to the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has an element of ego maybe, yeah. but it's, it's not only about me, myself and I, it's also about the others. It's, mm -hmm. it's about making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think that's also the most important balance to find yeah. <laughs> between yourself and the other. Yeah, if we have a good intention, sometimes it could go in the wrong direction. Sure. No, of course. I mean, there are so many examples in engineering ethics where, where, where that takes place. And then it's not only a matter of ego, by the way. It can, it can be mm -hmm. uh, somebody who wants to score and wants to be famous, etc. But it can also be simply a matter of economics and that there mm -hmm. is some kind of whistleblower who said, well, that, that mm -hmm. part of the machine is not so good. You should replace it. And the boss says, no, 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 it's too expensive. And we go for it. And then mm -hmm. we have a disaster anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, it's a very, very complicated uh, chain of interactions, any innovation, yeah. where ego plays a role, but uh, many other elements as well. Yeah. So we come close to the end, but I would like to ask you about social inequality, because if we have the robots, like vegetable robots, yes. robots it would, of course, a place where some countries are really bending in, in this kind of craft we have. So how do you see the social inequality really can make sure, while we develop technology, make sure there is no social inequality happening in the other side. 
wow <laughs> if i could solve that <laughs> i would yeah. get the nobel prize for peace <laughs> i guess <laughs> so this is the, the, this question is a size too big for me i think but i do believe uh, that uh, from my little perspective and my little contribution um, a very important thing to reduce inequality is uh, to to keep an eye on it in uh, the design, implementation, and use of a technology. Um, and that requires a specific sensitivity that is not self-evidently an element in engineering education or in policy making. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually also something that's really worrying me uh, in the whole world <laughs> at, at the moment. That, well, for instance, the UNESCO agenda of inclusiveness is now uh, portrayed by some people as a, as a leftist agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas it's basically actually trying to implement human rights. <laughs> I mean, if human rights are seen as something leftist, then yeah, that is a big problem. <laughs> so I hope we get over that mm -hmm. stage in the history of our society soon, because I think uh, in inclusiveness is something that uh, well, many people ultimately can see as a very important value because it yeah. also implies room for yourself. It implies room for diversity. It doesn't imply total assimilation of everything. It implies that everyone with their own idiosyncrasies can be a member of the society. Mm -hmm. And um, keeping an eye on that, which also means keeping an eye on bias, keeping an eye on uh, power relations, inclusion, exclusion, uh, well, should be an important element of, of any innovation that mm -hmm. we are making. So that means uh, forms of responsible innovation, uh, design for values, value-based design, mm -hmm. responsible design as we do in our design lab here at, mm -hmm. uh, at the University of Twente, mm -hmm. where you try to design from the perspective of values, trying to enact these values in the design process itself, where inclusiveness is one of the most important ones. Mm -hmm. Right. So I would like to ask you, do you have any robots at your home? <laughs> I have this little, uh, well, it's, uh, uh, what's the name again? Cosmo. Oh, okay. <laughs> Cosmo. I, I, I got it as a gift actually for oh. a workshop that I gave. <laughs> and I, I must say, I, I've had some good hours with one of my children programming Cosmo to play hide and seek. <laughs> <laughs> so, what other bots do you wish to have in your home or something? You can imagine if you something from the future, you, oh, I need this robot that can do that. <laughs> Maybe uh, my favorite robot is my washing machine. <laughs> if, if it could be a bit more advanced. <laughs> oh, what features do you expect? <laughs> Maybe putting all the, the, the stuff back into uh, the places where they belong. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a joke. And I, I must say, in my daily life, I don't uh, feel uh, a, a big need, but probably if they are there uh, in, in, in 50 years from now, you will say, well, how could we have ever lived without it? Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't have big dreams about robots, I must confess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe self-driving car would be my, my first, <laughs> if, mm -hmm. if, if I may choose, that would be great. Also because of the environmental uh, gain it could, uh, it could bring. Mm -hmm. So as you ask philosopher, I think we have to ask you this question. I know maybe cliche question, but what makes you excited and happy every day? Wow. <laughs> because I think one of, most of us just struggling every day, like to find your purpose and your call and 
it's just a challenging and you can't figure out but you're a philosopher and i think <laughs> you can <laughs> well but, uh, of course not every day is uh, is exciting <laughs> for me either <laughs> but uh, i think what makes me exciting in this field is that uh, well actually technology itself is so exciting it's it's like a, uh, energy that is flowing all the time innovation is like uh, mm karma or yeah. <laughs> something it goes on it's yeah. energy it is innovation creativity it's uh, well the continuous uh, beginning anew that you see around you that challenges us our society the concept with which we think so as soon as you open up for that and don't stick to our own autonomy and we have to fight against technology but as, as soon as you embrace mm -hmm. our fate <laughs> that our society is changing all the time through technology and it becomes very exciting. It becomes a challenge to understand what's happening to us and also how the values that we find so important can still keep playing a role in this technological world. Mm -hmm. So in Nick's 100 years, what is the thing you wish the humanity can do? Wow. <laughs> I hope uh, AI can um, play a role in uh, world peace. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a naive hope, but I would hope that, of course, it can also take a totally opposite direction. But if AI could enable us to deal in a more balanced and rational way sometimes with situations of conflict, mm -hmm. it could help us predict the impact of the actions we could take, give us uh, a balanced advice and reduce the impulses uh, on the basis of which people sometimes make very stupid decisions, then uh, that will be... Uh, mm -hmm. That will be great. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> so, what's the best advice was given to you and was like life changing to you? To uh, study the combination of physics and philosophy. Oh. <laughs> An advice that I got when I was 15, 16 years cool. old. I just could not make a decision. But this was the best advice ever mm. given to me, I think, because it, uh, it changed my life and I still like my life. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so, I would like to ask you if you have final words you'd like to share with our audience. Wow. I'm very excited that uh, you're all so interested in uh, uh, topics regarding soft robotics and the impact of robotics in our society. So I think, uh, uh, well, uh, keep up the good work, I would say. If you're in the field of robotics, uh, you are actually helping to shape the future of our mm -hmm. society. And uh, I hope that uh, a lot of uh, the talks you hear on this podcast and also a lot of the ethical ideas you can see everywhere around you can inspire you to do your work in a, in a responsible way. Right. Thanks so much. And on behalf of IEEE Rise Soft Robotics, I would like to thank you for your time. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.